47 years ago, on a warm summer's night in Melbourne, Susan Bartlett and Suzanne Armstrong were stabbed to death in their home in Easy Street, Collingwood. Suzanne's 16-month-old son was asleep in his cot at the time. To this day, the Easy Street murders is still one of Australia's most confronting cold cases. No one has ever been charged, and critical questions remain unanswered. Journalist Helen Thomas has been investigating Susan and Suzanne's deaths for more than a decade, initially for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's background briefing program, and then for her book, Murder on Easy Street. Now Helen has delved into the case again for a brand new original podcast made for Casefile Presents. Search Casefile Presents The Easy Street Murders wherever you get your podcasts or binge the entire series for free on the iHeartRadio app. Our episodes deal with serious and often distressing incidents. If you feel at any time you need support, please contact your local crisis centre. For suggested phone numbers for confidential support, Please see the show notes for this episode on your app or on our website. Bristol is a vibrant, lively city in England's southwest, situated 169 kilometres west of London. Blending rich maritime history with a modern dynamic culture, the city hosts a range of restaurants, museums, art galleries, festivals and shopping districts earning Bristol a reputation as one of the most cosmopolitan British cities outside of London. Beyond its urban offerings, Bristol is known for its abundance of green spaces and parks, with the local community taking pride in the town's eco-friendly reputation. Residents are regarded as friendly and welcoming, with a strong sense of community spirit, making Bristol a great place to work and live. The Bristol area has a moderate crime rate, scaling on the higher end when compared to other districts in the region, but this mostly concerns theft and drug offences. Major violent crimes are rare, providing Bristol residents with the peace of mind that their community is safe and protected. This communal sense of security was shaken in late February 2015 by a Facebook post originating from Bristol. The post featured an image of a teenage girl with the accompanying text reading, quote, Please share. Missing 16-year-old girl. Please private message if you have seen her or know anything. Not long after, a second unsettling Facebook post was appearing across feeds. This one reading, quote, Please, if anyone has seen or heard from my daughter, just let me know she is safe. She went missing on Thursday, February 19 at 11.15am to meet her boyfriend and never arrived. She hasn't been seen by any of her friends. Police have started a search. I'm really scared now. I want her home. Within days, the original Facebook posts had been shared hundreds of times and the hashtag FindBecky was trending on Twitter. Thousands of flyers were scattered throughout the streets of Bristol, featuring two candid photos of the missing teenage girl who was making waves across social media. The flyer read, 
We are appealing for the public's help to find missing teenager Rebecca Watts, who has gone missing in the St. George area of Bristol. She went missing from the Crown Hill area on the morning of Thursday, February 19. It is out of character for her not to contact someone if she is not returning home. Rebecca is described as a white girl, aged 16, about 5 foot 4 inches of slim build with long reddish brown hair. She may be wearing a blue puffer style jacket. We would like Rebecca or anyone who knows where she is to contact us to confirm she is alright. Rebecca Marie Watts, known by friends and family as Becky, was born in Bristol on June 3, 1998. Even though her parents separated when she was just a baby, Becky had a special talent for ensuring her mum and dad always maintained a friendly relationship. After her parents' separation, Becky and her older brother Daniel lived with their father, Darren Galsworthy. Darren doted on his little girl. On Becky's fourth birthday, Darren built her a garden playhouse where she could host elaborate fantasy-themed tea parties for her dolls and toys. The closeness between the pair only strengthened over the years, with Darren becoming his daughter's number one supporter. When Becky entered her teens and began suffering severe bouts of low self-esteem, Darren would assure her she was beautiful and promised that he would always be there for her. When Becky was just six months old, her father found love again with a woman named Angie. Darren was drawn to Angie's warm, loving persona and kind smile. Their relationship came naturally, with Darren describing it as two pieces of a jigsaw puzzle that fit together perfectly. Angie had a son of her own from a previous relationship, 11-year-old Nathan Matthews but she equally embraced Darren's two children as her own, taking on the role as a supportive stepmother. Others remarked that Angie's love was so immense, no one missed out. Through no fault of her own, Becky required constant reassurance, love and affection in her formative years, which Angie was quick to provide. This led Becky to develop a close bond with her stepmother, and the two became best friends. When Becky started primary school, her shyness prevented her from leaving Angie's side. For the next four years, Angie volunteered to work as an unpaid teacher's aide at the school, just so she could remain close to her stepdaughter, offering the little girl comfort and support any time she needed it. Whenever they could, Angie and Darren would take Becky to the Bristol Zoo and other wildlife parks, sparking Becky's love of animals. This affinity never faded. Throughout her life, Becky owned several pets, including a cat, rabbit, turtle, hamsters, and a rat. Becky grew into a kind and sweet-natured 12-year-old, although her transition into high school was difficult as she was targeted by bullies who tormented her relentlessly. In one instance, a group of other students ripped Becky's brand-new jacket right off her back, 
This was the last straw for Angie, who confronted the school principal demanding action, but her efforts to help only made things worse for Becky in the schoolyard. A few months into the school year, Becky came home in tears, crying to her parents that she didn't have any friends and that nobody liked her. Darren and Angie found this hard to believe, given that Becky was such a lovable young girl who was kind and gentle to everyone. They assured her it would be a matter of time until the other kids saw just how wonderful she was. Unfortunately, the bullying continued, getting progressively worse as the year went on. After struggling to overcome issues with her negative body image, Becky was diagnosed with an eating disorder and social anxiety, which led to her developing a stronger dependency on Angie, along with a fear of leaving the house. Her father referred to these as very dark times, but the family worked through it together. Darren Ballsworthy, quote, Becky was bullied about her weight, and we almost lost her to anorexia. But with a lot of care from us and hospital education, we were able to get our Becky back. When Becky was 13 years old, the family faced another challenge when Angie was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. This chronic condition of the central nervous system interferes with nerve impulses within the brain, spinal cord, and optic nerves, resulting in loss of sight, balance, and muscle movement. Small household tasks started to present Angie a challenge, and she struggled to go about her daily life, unable to cook a meal or move around freely, clutching door frames to stop herself from falling over. Becky saw this as an opportunity to reciprocate the love and support Angie had given her throughout her life. Darren provided Angie with a wheelchair, and he and Becky would take turns bringing Angie for walks and helping to make her life as easy as possible. Spirits were lifted in 2013 when Darren asked Angie to marry him. Becky had developed an interest in fashion and a keen eye for style, so Darren and Angie trusted her completely to choose the wedding dress, bridesmaids' gowns, and suits for the men. Becky chose her favourite colour as the theme for the big day. Blue. By age 16, Becky lived with Darren and Angie in a two-storey terrace home on Crown Hill in St George, a district on the eastern edge of Bristol's city boundary. The trio were regularly visited by the couple's older sons, Nathan and Daniel, who had since grown up and moved out. Nathan remained close, having started a family of his own in Bristol with his partner, Shauna. Shauna took on the role as Angie's full-time carer, and would stop by the Goresworthy's Crown Hill home most days to check in on her mother-in-law. Becky had since moved schools, a change that made an overwhelmingly positive impact on her life. She was no longer bullied, and instead formed a close-knit group of friends who spent lots of their spare time together, going to the cinema, playing video games, and hanging out at one another's homes. Inspired to help other students who were struggling to fit in at school, Becky took on a self-appointed mentorship role, spending her breaks talking to and giving advice to others, making sure no one else ever felt as vilified and alone as she once had. 
Becky commenced a relationship with 17-year-old Luke Oberhansley, a trainee car mechanic and a long-time friend. Regarded as a friendly and polite young man, Luke earned the appreciation of Becky's parents as he treated their daughter with respect and kindness. Becky was shy within big groups of people, but with Luke, she felt comfortable to be outgoing and funny. By February 2015, the young couple had marked their four-month anniversary. They spent as much time together as they could and were in regular contact when they were apart, constantly sending each other text messages. At 11.03am on February 19, 2015, Luke's mobile phone buzzed, alerting him to a new text message from Becky who he had listed in his phone contacts as My Princess. She was responding to Luke's text message from a minute earlier, where he had advised his girlfriend he was at home. The message from Becky read, Goody, followed by four kiss symbols and an affectionate emoji. It was immediately followed by a second message from Becky, saying she was at her house listening to music. Luke was tempted to visit Becky that morning, but as he had made plans to see a dentist and get a haircut, he decided to catch up with Becky later in the afternoon. At 12.09pm, Luke sent Becky a text message letting her know he had finished up with the dentist. When Becky didn't respond straight away, Luke presumed she was temporarily busy or distracted and would get back to him soon. When she still hadn't replied over half an hour later, Luke proceeded to send her a series of follow-up texts in a bid to get her attention. At 12.46pm, he messaged Becky, Oi. She didn't respond. After nearly an hour passed, Luke messaged Becky again, saying, Becky, Oi. Once again, his text was met with silence. Presuming his girlfriend must have been taking a nap, Luke waited and then a few hours later messaged Becky a third time. Hello. That afternoon, Luke went to his local barbershop to get a haircut as planned, finishing up the appointment at around 3pm. He checked his phone, but there was still nothing from Becky. Luke called Becky, but the line didn't ring, connecting him straight to her voicemail. He suspected her phone battery must have died. At around 5pm, Luke made the three-kilometre trip to Becky's house on Crown Hill to check if she was there. Upon arriving, Luke noticed the black Vauxhall Zafira car belonging to Becky's 28-year-old stepbrother Nathan was parked in the driveway, so he knew someone was at home. Nathan's girlfriend... 21-year-old Shauna Hoare answered the front door. As usual, Shauna was at the Crown Hill address providing daily care for Angie. When Luke asked if Becky was home, Shauna wasn't certain. They inquired with Angie, but she wasn't sure either. Neither woman had seen Becky all afternoon. A quick check of Becky's bedroom confirmed she wasn't at the house. Becky was an independent teenager who Angie and Darren trusted wholeheartedly, so she was allowed to come and go as she pleased. 
while she usually told her parents where she was going and with whom. Sometimes she left the house without letting anyone know her movements. This didn't concern Angie and Darren, as Becky never ventured far away and only ever hung out with Luke or her close group of friends, who they knew and trusted. However, the fact that Becky wasn't responding to text messages struck Angie as odd, as this was out of character. Luke also found it very unlike Becky not to be at home or be in contact with him when they had made plans to meet up. She never cancelled their plans without telling him. Assuming there must be a logical reason for Becky's lack of communication, Luke and Angie pushed their concerns to the backs of their minds and assured themselves she would return home soon. By 2.30pm the following day, Friday, February 20, Becky still hadn't returned home. It wasn't unusual for Becky to sleep over at a friend's place, all the more likely given it was school holidays. But as the hours passed, Becky failed to show up or make contact with anyone. Darren Goolsworthy was at work when he received a phone call from his wife Angie asking if he had seen or heard from his daughter. Several of Becky's friends had gathered at their home on Crown Hill, worried that they hadn't seen or heard from Becky in over 24 hours. Darren checked Becky's Facebook page to see if she had recently posted a status update or uploaded a photo that would hint at her whereabouts, but she hadn't posted anything in the past 24 hours. Darren called Becky's mobile, but it was still going straight to voicemail. He left his daughter a message, asking, Becky, can you call me back and let me know where you are? Thanks, love. Darren left work and made his way home. It was unlike Becky to leave home for this long without telling anyone where she was heading or when she expected to return. Like most teenagers, she could be moody at times and often clashed with her parents, but overall she was sensible and loyal. Not the type to run off. At the Goolsworthy's home, discussions were underway as to Becky's possible whereabouts. Members of Becky's immediate family were joined by her boyfriend Luke and three of Becky's closest friends. The group reflected on Becky's behaviour and mood in the days leading up to February 19 when she abruptly stopped messaging Luke and vanished. They all agreed that her demeanour was happy and carefree. She gave no indication that she intended to leave home, nor did she provide information to anyone as to where she could have gone. A timeline of Becky's last known movements was established. Luke had visited Becky at home two days earlier, on the night of Tuesday the 17th. The pair hung out in Becky's bedroom. Luke played video games on the television, while Becky mucked around on his iPad. Luke left in the late evening, noting that Becky was in good spirits and there was nothing concerning about her behaviour. The following night of Wednesday the 18th, Becky attended a party for the local rugby club in the St George area with her friend Adam. After the party, the pair retired to Adam's house to watch movies and play video games. They ordered and shared some fish and chips, with Adam recalling, quote, Becky seemed happy. We were just having a laugh really, as we always do. 
Adam's statement was corroborated by Luke, who was texting back and forth with Becky throughout that night. In her messages, Becky was her normal self. Her final text to Luke was sent at 3.52am. It simply read, I love you so much. Luke didn't reply as he was asleep at the time. Becky slept the night at Adam's house, returning home early the next morning at around 8.30am, February 19. Angie awoke to Becky knocking loudly on the front door. She needed to be let inside because her house key had jammed in the door's lock. Becky spent the morning at home, where she recommenced texting with Luke, the pair discussing plans to meet up later that afternoon. Becky was still home when Angie left for a scheduled doctor's appointment, sometime around 11am. Shortly after Angie had left for this doctor's appointment, Becky's stepbrother Nathan, his partner Shauna, and their two-year-old daughter arrived at the Goldsworthy house for their routine visit. Upon entering the house, the couple didn't have any interaction with Becky, but could hear music blaring from her room, giving them the impression she was at home. Nathan went straight into the lounge room and turned on a children's television program for his daughter, while Shauna stepped into the backyard to smoke a cigarette. Around 15 to 20 minutes later, at approximately 11.30am, both Nathan and Shauna heard the music in Becky's room turn off. Not long after, they heard footsteps stomping down the staircase, followed by the front door being slammed. They both assumed Becky must have been in a bad mood and had left the house. Angie returned home from the doctor's at around 12.45pm. At around 5pm, Luke visited the Goolsworthy home and alerted them to Becky's lack of contact. Angie kept a vigil with the company of Nathan and Shauna until Darren returned home from work. Although Becky didn't show up, the general consensus was she must have been spending the night elsewhere. At around 7pm, Nathan and Shauna left, and Angie and Darren eventually went to bed. When Becky still hadn't appeared or been in contact with anyone by 2pm the following day, concerns peaked, and everyone gathered at the Goolsworthy home to figure out where she might be. With the timeline established, Darren tried calling Becky's phone, but once again, the call went unanswered. He left another voicemail, pleading with his daughter to call or text to let everyone know she was safe. A search of Becky's bedroom followed. Hers was a quintessential teenage girl's room. The stark white walls were accentuated by a pink wardrobe, a cream fluffy rug, and a silver-framed full-length mirror. The pink window blinds were completely drawn. A double bed was pushed into a far corner facing a television with an adjacent bedside table containing a collection of candles. A shelving unit displayed Becky's beloved items of makeup, perfume, jewellery, and a set of speakers, with a shoe rack underneath neatly stocked with trainers, heels, and multiple pairs of black boots. A white t-shirt hung from a hanger, its surface scrawled with handwritten messages of good luck and well-wishes from friends. In typical teenage fashion, 
The room was cluttered and somewhat messy, but everything appeared in its usual place. Several key items were noted as missing, including Becky's laptop, mobile phone, tablet, and several items of clothing, a blue onesie pyjama outfit, a green jumper, and a blue puffer-style jacket. However, the charging cables for all her tech devices were still there, as were Becky's purse, money, toothbrush, bags, and makeup kit, items she would usually take if she planned to spend a significant amount of time away from the house. As Becky's friends became increasingly distraught, Darren sent them home while he went door-knocking in the area to check if any neighbours had seen Becky around, but none had. With no idea of her whereabouts or what to do next, Darren called the police and declared his daughter as a missing person. That evening, Darren asked his stepson Nathan to help him create a post on Facebook. Nathan typed out the message as Darren dictated. The post, along with a photo of Becky, was published at 5.53pm. It read, Please share. Missing 16-year-old girl. Please private message if you have seen her or know anything. Police arrived to the Goolsworthys' home that night at 6.30. Officers queried whether Becky had recently been in an argument or had an altercation with anyone. Angie recalled that the last time she saw Becky, the teen had been a bit grumpy because her front door key was malfunctioning, but other than that, she had seemed very happy of late. She had great friends who she spent a lot of time with, was dating a nice boy who treated her well and was looking forward to studying interior design when she finished high school. After noting down some details, police left the property, leading Darren to worry they were brushing Becky's disappearance off as a typical teen runaway. Taking matters into his own hands, he made phone calls to everyone he could think of who might know where Becky had gone. Becky's biological mother, Tanya Watts, confirmed she hadn't seen her daughter in over three weeks. Becky's older brother, Daniel, took the news of Becky's disappearance hard, as the day his sister was last seen coincided with his 20th birthday. Darren was kept awake that night with chilling thoughts that Becky may have been kidnapped after leaving the house to meet up with Luke. Spurred by this fear, he called Becky's mobile phone once again, leaving another voice message directed at anyone who might have abducted her. Quote, If you have my daughter, let her go or I will kill you. Let my daughter go. I want my girl back in one piece. I will kill anyone who hurts my daughter. I promise you, I will get to you. And when I do, you're dead. By the following morning of Saturday, February 21, Darren's initial Facebook post requesting help to find Becky had been shared over 800 times. He quickly created a follow-up post that read, quote, Please, if anyone has seen or heard from my daughter, just let me know she is safe. She went missing on Thursday, February 19 at 11.15am to meet her boyfriend and never arrived. She hasn't been seen by any of her friends. Police have started a search, 
I'm really scared now. I want her home. As the disappearance of Becky Watts gained national attention across social media, a team of eight detectives showed up to the Goolsworthy home to begin an official search for the teenager. As Becky hadn't accessed her phone or contacted friends or family since the morning of her disappearance, Detective Chief Inspector Richard Acone instinctually believed this wasn't just a case of a misbehaving teen. He had a strong suspicion Becky had met with foul play. Nevertheless, when police started publicising the case on Sunday, February 22, their focus was on promoting Becky's disappearance and encouraging locals to be on the lookout, as opposed to suggesting the 16-year-old was in any danger. They started a social media campaign using Becky's photo along with the hashtag FindBecky. Police emphasised the fact that it was out of character for Becky not to be in contact with friends or family, adding that she might be wearing a blue puffer-style jacket, the one noticed missing from her bedroom. A press conference was held the following day, on Monday, February 23. Darren Goolsworthy was asked to appeal directly to his daughter, on the chance she had run away and was scared to return home due to the police and media attention. Bex, if you're uh, watching this, please come home. We love you so much, and whatever you think, we can, we can sort anything out with the matter. Just come home. And if any of her friends are out in her, you're not doing her any favours. Just tell the police. Just bring um, number 101 and just bring her home safe. Darren broke down and was unable to continue. So Becky's grandmother, Pat, took over. Hi, Bex, it's Nan. You can see your dad is a broken man. Please just... If you don't want to come home yet, just just let someone else ring or text someone. And if you want, if you're a bit worried about coming back because of all this hullabaloo, come and stay with me for a few days. You know I got a spare room. But you will. You're so loved, and I don't think you believe it. You really are so loved. And look at your poor dad. Please come home, or whoever's sheltering her, do the right thing. Thank you. Detective Chief Inspector Richard Acone wrapped up the conference. First, I just want to say to, uh, to Becky, you're not in any trouble. We're all concerned about your well-being, and we just want to make sure that you're okay. If you can call home, um, or one of your friends, or phone us, the police, on 101, and just confirm where you are, and let us know you're okay. We can help work through any issues that you might be facing. I would also ask anyone who might have any information about where Rebecca is to come forward and talk to us. After the press conference, Darren agreed to an interview with Jack FM, a popular Bristol radio station. He told the host of the show, quote, Becky's very shy and timid, not around us and her closest friends, but anyone outside of that, and she wouldn't be able to talk to them. As I have told the police, she can't even go up to a till in a shop. She couldn't even ask for a bus ticket. She would rather walk than get on a bus and ask the driver for a ticket. 
This is how shy and reserved she is. So this just doesn't add up. Members of Becky's family organised a public search around Bristol St George area, where more than 100 locals volunteered their assistance. Volunteers were separated into smaller groups and sent in different directions to cover as much ground as possible, handing out over 8,000 flyers as they went. Those closest to Becky, including members of her immediate family and friendship circle, were questioned at length by police. But again, nothing was gained to suggest Becky's whereabouts. Her online movements, chat logs, text messages, phone records and social media accounts were checked, but nothing suspicious or helpful arose. The last time Becky had accessed her Facebook account was on the morning of her disappearance, and it hadn't been touched since. The last text messages sent from her phone were the ones to Luke and another friend, just after 11am on Thursday, February 19. With no sign of Becky, five different police jurisdictions were now involved in the investigation. South Wales, Wiltshire, Devon and Cornwall, with Bristol Police at the helm. They were assisted by search and missing persons experts from the National Crime Agency, College of Policing, and various national missing persons organisations. During the course of the search, two police dive teams combed through ponds in nearby parks and nature reserves. 26 buildings were entered. 328 houses were door knocked. 300 back gardens and outhouses were searched and another 100 areas of the city were inspected. At one point, over 500 officers were actively involved in the case, making the search to find Becky Watts the largest missing person case in the county's history. But still, the police were no closer to finding any sign of the teenager. The online police campaign promoting Becky Watts' disappearance had reached more than 2 million people across the world gaining global attention for the case. Yet, despite all efforts, Becky remained missing. Meanwhile, forensic investigators examining the Goolsworthy's Crown Hill property picked up something of note in Becky's bedroom. Although near impossible to see with the naked eye, forensic testing detected red staining on the architrave leading into Becky's bedroom. The staining appeared in spatter-like patterns at different heights, some low, some waist height, and some shoulder height. Found within the staining was a set of red fingerprints. Initial testing confirmed the substance was human blood, but it would take time to determine who it and the fingerprints belonged to. Analysis of the blood spatter revealed the pattern was consistent with a struggle having taken place in the vicinity of Becky's bedroom. However, Becky's older stepbrother Nathan Matthews and his long-term partner Shauna Hoare had been in the house with Becky on the morning of her disappearance and did not report hearing an altercation take place. If the blood on the doorframe belonged to Becky Watts, It seemed highly unlikely the 16-year-old simply walked out of her family home on the late morning of Thursday, February 19.
47 years ago, on a warm summer's night in Melbourne, Susan Bartlett and Suzanne Armstrong were stabbed to death in their home in Easy Street, Collingwood. Suzanne's 16-month-old son was asleep in his cot at the time. To this day, the Easy Street murders is still one of Australia's most confronting cold cases. No one has ever been charged, and critical questions remain unanswered. Journalist Helen Thomas has been investigating Susan and Suzanne's deaths for more than a decade, initially for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's background briefing program, and then for her book, Murder on Easy Street. Now Helen has delved into the case again for a brand new original podcast made for Casefile Presents. Search Casefile Presents The Easy Street Murders wherever you get your podcasts or binge the entire series for free on the iHeartRadio app. Nathan Matthews and Shauna Hoare's accounts of Thursday, February 19, 2015, matched word for word. For Detective Chief Inspector Richard Ocone, the couple's identical stories drew his immediate suspicions. Quote, They were really consistent in their accounts. However, The detective's side of my brain was saying that they fit together really conveniently and neatly. Even the best witnesses will provide accounts that are incorrect. In the initial stages of the investigation into Becky Watt's disappearance, Nathan and Shauna were asked to participate in police interviews, but efforts to meet with the couple were delayed as they were consistently unavailable. One such request happened on Monday, February 23, four days into the search for Becky. Shauna declined to meet with police, explaining her and Nathan had made dinner plans with her mother. Shauna's mother Lisa was surprised when her daughter called her out of the blue to organise a visit that day, arriving at her property in South Mead with Nathan within the hour. By the fifth day of the investigation, police were no longer willing to wait for Nathan and Shauna's cooperation. Two detective constables visited Cotton Mill Lane in the Barton Hill district of Bristol, knocking on the front door of a council-owned terraced flat where Nathan and Shauna lived with their two-year-old child. When Nathan answered the door, he looked noticeably tired and pale, with dark circles framing his eyes. Yet, upon greeting the detectives, he perked up and was welcoming and talkative, inviting the officers inside. Before they entered, He apologised for the state of his house. From the outside, their property looked completely normal. The mixed red brick and dark timber two-storey flat had a neat and tidy exterior. However, the interior was a starkly different story. Inside, the detective constables were confronted by a disgusting scene of squalor and filth, accompanied by a strong stench of cat faeces. Nathan and Shauna's home could only be described as that of hoarders, with each room filled from floor to ceiling with junk, random pieces of furniture, broken electrical items, toys, dirty dishes, boxes, and takeaway food containers. Efforts to enter through the front door were hindered by belongings, including a pram, toys, a two-foot-tall fridge, plastic bags, and a cat crate. Detective Constable Simon Wallace, quote, It was hard to envisage a family living comfortably at the address due to the volume of clutter scattered around the house. I don't believe the downstairs could have been used, 
there was nowhere to sit and no way to gain access to the kitchen facilities. Nathan explained the clutter was due to his habit of bringing home discarded items he believed he could fix up to use or sell. However, it appeared he never bothered to repair anything. Strewn among his overwhelming collection of useless junk were empty soda cans, cat food tins, yogurt containers, and other household trash, while a pile of unwashed dishes lay ignored in the kitchen sink. Nathan claimed he had recently been diagnosed with fibromyalgia, a disease that affects the nervous system and triggers severe pain in various parts of the body, rendering him unable to hold a full-time job. He worked part-time as a delivery driver for a local Chinese restaurant, but hadn't taken a shift in recent days. His partner, Shauna Hoare, was raising the couple's two-year-old daughter, whilst also earning an income as the full-time carer for Nathan's mother, Angie. Nathan led the officers to an upstairs bedroom, pushing past a mattress that lay hunched over the stairs. The bedroom was piled high with all sorts of clutter, the walkway to the bed the only clear area with enough remaining space for the three to stand together and talk. A toaster, kettle and condiments sat on one side of the double bed, a makeshift kitchen as the real one was inaccessible. Shauna was inside the bedroom sitting on the bed, but interacted very little with the detectives. Nathan repeated his version of events on the late morning of Thursday, February 19. He was certain Becky left the Goolsworthy house shortly after he and Shauna arrived, but maintained not seeing or interacting with her in the short time all three were inside. The detectives wandered through Nathan and Shauna's home, tailed by Nathan, who allowed them to see each room. Possessions were piled on tables and chairs, towering over the group as they navigated through narrow pathways between the junk. Eventually, they reached the only door in the house that was shut. It led into the bathroom. Detective Constable Simon Wallace, quote, I stepped in one or two feet. It was cleaner than the rest of the house. The bathroom window was open. The actual bath itself was clear. There was nothing on it or on the sides at all. The bath was clean. Feeling the heat of the investigative spotlight, the cagey and uncooperative Nathan Matthews and Shauna Hoare suddenly volunteered to participate in formal police interviews. On Friday, February 27, the eighth day of Becky's disappearance, the couple were separated into different interview rooms and questioned at length about the missing teen. Nathan spoke of his relationship with his younger stepsister explaining that they were civil and bonded occasionally by venting about problems in their lives, but weren't particularly close. They weren't even friends on Facebook. It wasn't always this way. The step-siblings were close when they were much younger. When Nathan's mother Angie moved in with her new beau, Darren Galsworthy, she didn't want to uproot her son from the area he was settled in, so he remained living with his grandmother. Despite the separation, Nathan was still treated as a key member of the family and was regarded as the big brother to Daniel and Becky Watts. He'd visit regularly, and as the eldest, he would often escort his younger step-siblings to an adventure playground. 
Becky didn't learn to speak clearly until she was three years old, with the first fully formed word to come out of her mouth being Nathan. Although Nathan was regarded as a normal, well-adjusted child, others noticed he gradually changed as he grew older, becoming a loner with a short temper. At age 13, he joined the Army Cadets and went on to have an active role in the Army Reserves throughout his late teens and early 20s. It was during these later years when the relationship between Becky and Nathan began to sour. Darren Goolsworthy always sensed there was an underlying tension between his daughter and stepson as they vied for Angie's attention. As such, the step-siblings clashed quite often. Nathan would snap at Becky for carelessly leaving things lying around the house that his mother could potentially trip over. He also drew issue with Becky's eating disorder, believing that she used it as a means to manipulate Angie for sympathy and attention. He considered Becky selfish and harboured jealousy towards her for what he perceived to be a spoiled upbringing in comparison to his own. These tensions didn't escalate beyond common sibling rivalry, but worked to cause distance between the once close pair. When asked if he had helped search for his stepsister, Nathan responded, quote, I haven't actually gone out to search, no. Obviously I've gone out to the shop, but I haven't seen her on the way. Nobody seems to notify us of what's going on. It's one of those things, you've got to wait. Becky doesn't talk to me about her life, the things she does. The day before Becky went missing, she went out and didn't let my mum know where she was. Nathan couldn't recall when he last spoke to Becky adding that it had been more than six months since the two even exchanged text messages. Unlike her partner, Shauna Hoare was far more positive in describing her relationship with Becky. Although the two weren't particularly close, Shauna admitted that she was finding Becky's disappearance quite hard. The girls had become like family, both standing by Angie's side during her wedding to Darren serving as bridesmaids in the blue gowns selected by Becky. Although Shauna described Becky as a nice girl, she held similar opinions to Nathan that the teenager was spoiled and selfish. It was behaviour Shauna resented as she carried the scars of a broken home and saw Becky as ungrateful for her privileged upbringing. Along with her seven siblings, Shauna had grown up in foster care living with six different foster families throughout her childhood before returning to the custody of her mother at age 13. She began a relationship with Nathan Matthews one year later, moving out when she was 17 years old and soon losing touch with her mother over an argument regarding a car. Shauna had a reputation for being dishonest, with friends recalling she lied shamelessly about having cancer and being pregnant. After she left school, Shauna started studying to become a childcare assistant, but quit the training when she felt pregnant for real. Shauna was thrilled when presented with the opportunity to become Angie's full-time carer, as it would allow her to be paid for work she had been doing previously for free. However, Nathan and Shauna's presence wasn't always welcomed at the Goolsworthy home. The couple used the house as a refuge of sorts, eating all the food and often asking for money. Darren felt the couple took advantage of their hospitality 
and that Shauna had started to slacken in her caregiving duties for Angie. When Nathan refused to find full-time employment, Darren suspected it wasn't fibromyalgia that kept his stepson out of work, but instead of laziness and a vicious jealous streak that meant he wanted to keep an eye on Shauna at all times. Darren had disapproved of Nathan and Shauna's relationship from its inception. Nathan met Shauna when he was 21 years old and she was only 14, which wasn't the first time Nathan showed a fixation for underage girls. When Nathan was 19, he drove up to the family home with several young girls in the back of his car who looked no older than 12 years old. Darren was furious and ordered Nathan to drive the girls home immediately. Years later, when Nathan and Shauna had a child together, their critics came to accept their relationship and treat Shauna like family. But there was still something unpleasant about the two. While Nathan and Shauna usually visited the Goolsworthy home almost every day, they had mysteriously kept their distance since Becky's disappearance. When family members organised to gather together to hand out missing person flyers around town, Nathan and Shauna were nowhere to be seen. Suspicions about Nathan and Shauna continued to rise, but up until this point, there was no evidence to directly link them or anyone else to Becky's disappearance. It was as though the girl had simply vanished into thin air. But then, the forensic test results of the blood spatter and bloody fingerprints found on the doorframe leading into Becky's bedroom came through. The blood was confirmed to belong to Becky Watts, The fingerprint belonged to her stepbrother, Nathan Matthews. On Saturday, February 28, 2015, Nathan Matthews and Shauna Hoare were located at a residential property in the suburb of South Mead in Bristol's north, the home belonging to Shauna's mother, Lisa. When police entered the house, they found Nathan playing a video game on a wall-mounted television. Detective Constable Rob Dolan swiftly placed Nathan under arrest for the kidnapping of Becky Watts. Dolan immediately told Nathan, I need to undertake an urgent interview with you. The basis of this is to find Becky Watts. Tell me where Becky is. Dolan then bombarded Nathan with more questions. Can you help us with where Becky is? Do you know if Becky is safe? Can you help us find out if Becky is safe? Nathan responded to each question with no comment. Unwilling to assist police, Nathan was immediately taken to Patchway Police Station in Bristol. Shauna Hoare was also placed under arrest on suspicion of kidnapping. When asked if she knew Becky's whereabouts, Shauna responded no. When asked if Becky was safe, Shauna replied, I don't know. When asked if she could help the police find out if Becky was safe, Shauna stated, I don't know how to. Upon Nathan and Shauna's arrest, the search to find Becky Watts continued. A statement issued by Becky's father Darren and stepmother Angie stated they were aware of the arrests but finding their daughter remained their highest priority. 
Darren Goolsworthy, quote, Rebecca has still not been found. We continue to hope that she will be found safe and unharmed, but we will prepare ourselves for the worst. Police appealed for witnesses to come forward who may have seen Nathan Matthews' black Vauxhall Zafira car between the critical time period of Thursday, February 19 and Monday, February 23. Detectives arrived to Nathan Matthews and Shauna Hoare's property on Cotton Mill Lane accompanied by a team of forensic investigators. Together, they sifted through the overwhelming clutter, hoping to find any piece of information that could lead them to finding Becky. They uncovered multiple items of interest, including black carpet lining from the boot of Nathan's car, which was found stuffed inside a cooker in the bathroom. Two stun guns were sitting on a glass-topped table on the left-hand side of the living room, items which could not be legally possessed without lawful authority. The weapons were capable of delivering a shock of over 8,000 volts each without leaving a mark. A promising piece of evidence was found upstairs when traces of blood were detected and immediately sent away for testing against Becky Watts' DNA. The impeccably clean bathtub in the upstairs bathroom continued to raise suspicions of authorities at the scene, standing out like a sore thumb in the otherwise filthy flat. Upon entering the bathroom, the tub was positioned against the right side wall, glistening white and empty. Yet, the rest of the room was crammed with more of the same junk that filled the rest of the house, including a cooker and microwave, with bags, clothes, dirty dishes, and rubbish piled on top. Extensive chemical analysis of the tub, waste pipes, wall tiles, blinds, and door failed to reveal any trace of Becky Watt's DNA. It was clear the tub and surrounding tiles had recently been scrubbed using harsh disinfectants with drain cleaner poured down the pipes. Hidden inside a cupboard, investigators found several crumpled receipts dated Friday, February 20, the day after Becky allegedly left her home and disappeared. One receipt from local home improvement retail store B&Q totaled £88 and listed the sale of four items. Goggles, face masks, gloves, and a circular saw. CCTV footage obtained from B&Q showed Nathan Matthews enter the store alone at around 12.50pm, dressed completely in black. He made his way to the power tool aisle where he casually paced in front of a shelf, inspecting several items before eventually settling on a McAllister brand circular saw. When Nathan went to purchase the item, it scanned at a higher cost than he anticipated, and he queried the price with the shop assistant. Remarking that he needed the power saw that day, Nathan disregarded the expense, paid for the item in full, and left. A second receipt dated Saturday, February 21, the day after the circular saw was purchased, came from a local Asda supermarket and listed various items totaling £98, including rubber gloves, bleach, and three rolls of cling film. CCTV footage recovered from the supermarket showed Nathan making the purchase. But he wasn't alone. This time, he was accompanied by Shauna. 
The couple were caught on CCTV again the next day, Sunday, February 22, this time entering discount retail chain 99P store, where they purchased eight reinforced rubbish bags, duct tape, various cleaning products, and a heavy-duty sponge. After these discoveries were made, police informed Nathan Matthews and Shauna Hoare they were now being held under arrest on suspicion of the murder of Becky Watts. Despite efforts to encourage the pair to start talking, they both remained tight-lipped. Investigators hinted they had uncovered some important evidence in the couple's home, hoping to pressure the accused into talking. When Nathan was informed that traces of blood had been found in his home, he appeared rattled. He immediately asked if it had been found upstairs, and investigators confirmed it had. Tests later revealed this blood was unrelated to the Becky Watts case, but the mere mention of it caused an immediate change in Nathan Matthews' demeanour. Detective Chief Inspector Richard Acone, quote, I think it probably felt like he was battling against a rising tide, and actually, you could feel the evidence starting to come on top. It was starting to weigh quite heavily. Eventually, the pressure mounted until it finally became too much to bear, and Nathan Matthews broke. On March 2, 2015, 12 days after Becky's disappearance, Nathan Matthews dictated a written statement in the presence of his lawyer, detailing his version of the events that took place inside the Goolsworthy home on Thursday, February 19, 2015. Nathan Matthews, quote, I, Nathan Charles Matthews, date of birth 9th of January 1987, accept that I am responsible for the death of Rebecca Watts. On the 19th of February 2015, I attended 18 Crown Hill with my girlfriend, Shauna Hoare. 18 Crown Hill is where my mother lives with Darren Goldsworthy. Rebecca Watts also lived there. Shauna is my mother's registered carer, so we regularly go to the house to help with housework and other help my mother needs. Although we usually went there on Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays, we did also go there on other days. On Thursday, 19th February, part of the reason for going around was to return a tin to my grandmother. My grandmother was due to take my mother to a medical appointment and bring her back. In my car, I had a large bag, a stun device, handcuffs, tape, and mask. I had developed an idea to scare Rebecca by kidnapping her. I wanted to kidnap her to teach her a lesson. I believed that she was selfish, and her behaviour towards my mother was a risk to her health. When we got to 18 Crown Hill, we let ourselves in with a key my mother had left in the recycling box. Upon entering the property, we all went to the front room. A few minutes after arriving, Shauna said she wanted a cigarette and went into the garden. I went to the boot of my car and took out a bag which contained the other items. I took everything upstairs to the landing. I think I then took the items out of the bag before knocking on Rebecca's door. She replied, what, or hello, and I said, can I see you a minute, or similar words. Rebecca then opened the door. I'm wearing a mask. 
I cannot be sure in which order things happened immediately after she came to the door, but I used the items I had to subdue Rebecca. During a short struggle, my mask slipped and Rebecca was able to see my face. This caused me to panic and I strangled her when she was partially in the bag. I collected the items I had used, put them and Rebecca into the bag and zipped up the bag. I also took her phone, tablet and a laptop together with shoes, some clothes and a duvet cover from the spare room in a separate bag. I took everything downstairs and put it into the boot of my car. Back in the house, I waited to hear Shauna, then slammed the front door shut. Before going to the front room, I checked that Shauna was not in that room. The rest of the day at the house goes as it would normally if we were there. We leave at about 7pm. The rest of the evening passed as usual, but I could not remember exactly what we did. After Shauna went to bed and sleep, I waited a while and went out to the car and brought the bags into the house. The following day, we went back to 18 Crown Hill and I tried to behave as normal. I tried to behave as normal as I could. When we returned to 14 Cotton Mill Lane, I again waited for Shauna to go to sleep. This time, I collected the bag with Rebecca's body and placed it in the bath. In order to stop Shauna using the bathroom the following morning, I poured a drain cleaner down the toilet so I could tell Shauna it was blocked again. The toilet would often get blocked, and when that happened, I knew Shauna would not go into the bathroom. I also locked the door. My memory of the days that followed is not perfect, so I'm not sure which day I returned to 14 Cotton Mill Lane having left Shauna at my mother's, but I think it was the Saturday. When I got back to 14 Cotton Mill Lane, I tried to dispose of the body by cutting it up with a circular saw. Initially, I wrapped up the body parts and took them back downstairs and hid them. I'm not sure how many days later, but on another day, I took the body, the saw and other items to 9 Barton Court, Barton Hill, and placed them in a garden shed. I took them to this address with two other people. I did not tell them what was in the bags and box, and I said I would collect them in a few days. Both of these people are men, but I do not want to name them. I have chosen to give my account by means of a written statement because I believe I have mental health and learning difficulties that make it difficult for me to say it out loud. Also, I find it difficult to express the detail in this account in spoken words. I would like to add that my denials to date have been motivated in part by a wish to avoid the pain and disappointment these admissions would cause to my partner and family. This statement was written by my solicitor, but it has been read by me, and I can confirm that it is an accurate account. Shauna did not know anything about my causing the death of Rebecca, or my attempt to dispose of and hide the body. Had she known, she would have reported me to the police. Apart from this statement, I will exercise my right to silence. Following his confession... Nathan Matthews was formally charged with the murder of his stepsister, Becky Watts. After Nathan confessed, police attended 9 Barton Court in Barton Hill 
where Nathan stated he had taken Becky's body. Nine Barton Court is a double-storey red-brick terrace home on the western edge of Bristol's Netham Park. Police were greeted by 29-year-old man Donovan Demetrius, who revealed the property was owned by his twin brother, Carl. He permitted officers' entry, with a cursory search of the interior confirming no one else was present. Glass patio doors at the rear of the home led out to a small concrete courtyard encased in a tall timber fence. The courtyard was sparse, containing nothing but a barbecue. Just as Nathan Matthews had described in his confession, a garden shed was situated at the rear of the property. A large square timber structure stocked full of belongings, its windows covered. Upon entering the shed, Investigators noticed several black garbage bags, a blue plastic box, a rucksack, and four suitcases piled on top of one another against the wall. The largest suitcase closest to the shed door was packed with a number of tightly wrapped parcels covered in cling film and plastic bags. After opening a package the size of a rugby ball and unwrapping the multiple layers of cling film that bound it together, Investigators were horrified to discover what it contained. It was a human right hand. The fist clenched and severed at the wrist. The fingernails varnished in red nail polish. Detective Chief Inspector Richard Acone, quote, The nature of the find is horrific and shocking. I have never dealt with anything like this, and it will stay with me throughout my service. It will stay with me throughout my life. The contents of the remaining suitcases revealed further dismembered body parts. The rucksack contained a 12.5 centimetre knife contaminated with blood and hair, along with a pair of scissors, two screwdrivers, handcuffs, blood-stained safety goggles, two face masks, a pink-spotted shower curtain, and two bottles of drain cleaner. Inside a different suitcase was a McAllister brand circular saw matted with blood and hair. A laptop, tablet and pieces of a broken iPhone were found inside plastic shopping bags that were knotted closed. A black carrier bag contained makeup, two pairs of women's shoes, black ankle boots and pink slippers, along with other items of women's clothing. A faux leather jacket, a blue checkered shirt and a blue puffer style jacket. The human remains were transported to a nearby mortuary where a forensic pathologist had the difficult task of performing a post-mortem. The body parts had been wrapped so tightly that the plastic had a preserving effect and some of the remains had been packed with kitchen salt and kitty litter, further working to preserve them. DNA extracted from the body was compared to samples previously taken from Becky Watt's toothbrush. The remains were confirmed to belong to the 16-year-old, with the blood and hair on the circular saw and weapons also established to be Becky's. The other possessions found with her remains, including the technology devices, makeup and clothing, also belonged to the teen. According to the pathologist's report, the likely cause of Becky Watt's death was suffocation. Injuries to her face were consistent with this finding as it appeared someone had held their hand over her nose and mouth with considerable force. 
This piece of information contradicted Nathan Matthews' confession, in which he claimed to have strangled Becky to death. This discrepancy indicated his version of events were not entirely truthful. Becky Watts sustained more than 40 defensive wounds across her body, indicating she had put up a fight during the attack. There were 15 stab wounds inflicted post-mortem, and an attempt had also been made to drain her body of fluid. There were no signs of sexual injury. In his confession, Nathan Matthews refused to name the two men he claimed helped him move the luggage containing Becky's remains and belongings to the garden shed at the rear of Nine Barton Court. However, it didn't take long for investigators to identify Nathan's accomplices. On the night of Monday, February 23, 2015, four days after Becky Watts was murdered, 29-year-old Carl Demetrius was at his workplace situated in the town of Filton, five miles north of Bristol's city centre. Shortly before midnight, Carl received a phone call from Nathan Matthews, who needed some items transported and stored. Desperate for help, Nathan was willing to pay £10,000 to get the job done. After the call, Carl approached 23-year-old colleague James Island and offered him half of the job's windfall in exchange for his assistance. James agreed, as he was always keen to make some quick cash. At 12.29am, the pair left work in James's Ford Fiesta and drove to a residential property in Southmead, where they picked up Nathan Matthews and Shauna Hoare. James Island had never met the couple before and had little interaction with them during the drive, other than asking for directions to their home. When the group arrived at Cotton Mill Lane, James was left alone in the car while the others got out. Carl and Nathan had a discussion before telling James to go back to work and exchange his car for a van. James did as requested, obtaining the white work van and returning to Nathan's house at around 1.30am. The items Nathan wanted to transport to Carl's house included several heavy suitcases, black garbage bags, and a blue plastic box. Nathan wouldn't reveal what they contained and gave the others strict instructions not to look inside. It took the three men approximately 25 minutes to load the items into the van. Carl and James initially suspected the heavy bags contained stolen electrical goods or something similar but upon feeling that the bags held something soft, they assumed they were filled with drugs. As they made the short drive to Carl's Barton Court property, the van's movements were recorded on local CCTV traffic cameras. When the trio arrived to 9 Barton Court, it took them two trips to load the bags into the kitchen before relocating them to the garden shed at the rear of the property. Afterwards, Carl and James returned to work, where they were overheard gloating about the money they had just made. The next day, Nathan returned to Carl's house with a rucksack, placing it in the shed with his other belongings. He told Carl he would return within a few days to collect the goods. A week after helping Nathan Matthews move the luggage, Carl and James were at work when a colleague noted the pair were acting oddly and were seen having a secretive conversation. The very next day,
Carl Demetrius and James Orland were arrested in relation to the murder of Becky Watts, charged with assisting an offender. Text messages sent between Carl and his 23-year-old girlfriend, Jaden Parsons, confirmed that she too knew about the job Nathan Matthews had hired her boyfriend to complete. Jaden encouraged Carl to store the items for Nathan, saying they could use the subsequent payment for a house deposit. Like Carl and James, Jaden assumed the bags contained something illegal, but maintained having absolutely no knowledge of the true contents. Due to having knowledge of the act, Jaden Parsons was also arrested for assisting an offender, as was Carl's twin brother, Donovan Demetrius, who also resided at the Barton Court property. Donovan's work colleagues recalled the man looked visibly tired and was noticeably reserved after arriving for work on February 24, the day after Nathan's bags were relocated to the Barton Court shed. Donovan told his manager he didn't get much sleep the night before because he was helping his brother with something. Despite Nathan Matthews' adamant claims that he acted alone in committing Becky's murder, investigators were convinced Shauna Hoare played a part. Shauna insisted she was completely oblivious to the fact that Nathan killed Becky. Her story hadn't changed. She was in the backyard smoking a cigarette. She maintained having no idea that Becky's body was in the boot of Nathan's car as the couple drove home that night, or that Nathan had dismembered Becky's body in their upstairs bathroom. Shauna claimed to have gone to bed early on the night that Becky's body parts were moved to Barton Court. However, she did recall Nathan talking to friends by a car outside that night. James Island, who assisted in relocating the bags containing Becky Watts' remains, said otherwise, claiming Shauna was present when the bags were loaded into the van. According to Shauna, Nathan complained about Becky constantly, but had never done anything to suggest he wanted to hurt her. He had a violent and aggressive temperament at times, and could get wound up very quickly, but only ever took his frustrations out on Shauna. It never crossed her mind that Nathan could be capable of killing someone. Shauna painted a dark picture of her relationship with Nathan, revealing that her boyfriend had total control of every aspect of her life and treated her like a child. A real jealous type, Nathan was increasingly paranoid that Shauna wanted to go out to meet other men. He wouldn't let her leave the house without him. When asked about what their future held, Shauna admitted there was still a part of her that cared for Nathan, but those feelings of tenderness had since been replaced with anger and disgust. While Shauna continued to deny any knowledge or involvement with Becky's murder, investigators recovered a deleted Facebook conversation that indicated she was being deceptive. Two months before Becky's murder, Nathan private messaged Shauna on Facebook, instructing her to bring two pretty schoolgirls back to the house for him. Shauna replied, quote, LOL, yeah, I'll just kidnap them from school. Later that same day, Shauna sent Nathan a message to tell him she just saw a pretty petite girl and, quote, almost knocked her out to bring her home, LOL. Nathan replied 20 seconds later, saying, 
Don't you almost me. Now do it, bitch. Shauna responded, laughing my fucking ass off. Yeah, I'll just go back in time to when I saw her, then time travel her to our attic. LOL. Shauna claimed the Facebook messages were intended as a joke, but her involvement with Becky Watts' murder was further solidified when the two face masks found with Becky's remains were forensically tested. The inside edges of both face masks contained Nathan's DNA, but one mask also contained the DNA of another person. Shauna. Shauna's DNA was also found on a knotted garbage bag taken from one of the suitcases containing Becky's body, implying she had handled it at some point. Also found with Becky's remains was a t-shirt that didn't belong to the teen. DNA testing revealed that it had been worn by Shauna. With forensic evidence now linking Shauna directly to Becky's remains, her current charge of kidnapping was upgraded to murder. Both Shauna and Nathan were additionally charged with preventing burial of a corpse, perverting the course of public justice, and possessing a prohibited weapon, relating to the two stun guns found in their home. Public reaction to the news of Nathan Matthews and Shauna Hoare's arrest for the murder of Becky Watts was heated. Abuse was hurled towards the couple on online forums where members of the Bristol community expressed anger over the amount of money, time, and resources used during the search for Becky, when Nathan had known exactly where her body was all along. In an outpouring of grief, the people of Bristol left flowers, teddy bears, and sympathy cards at the front gate of the Goolsworthy home, and named Becky, Bristol's angel. Members of the Bristol public showed their support for Becky's family by holding an online fundraising campaign for the teenager's funeral, ensuring Becky got the farewell she deserved. On April 17, 2015, Becky's short life was remembered during a funeral service held at St Ambrose Church, the same church where she had organised the wedding of her parents, Darren and Angie, just two years earlier. Becky's family stipulated that the service be a celebration of the teenager's life. Quote, No parent, relative, or friend would expect to lose a loved one at such a tender age. Becky had so much to look forward to and loved to share with all that were close and dear to her. Her death has touched the hearts of so many people. It is because of your kind support that we know the day will be a fitting tribute to a much-loved daughter, granddaughter, sister, niece, and friend. Over 500 mourners arrived to the church to pay tribute to Becky, far exceeding the building's capacity. Police closed down the surrounding streets, allowing crowds to encircle the church exterior and listen to the service via loudspeaker. Many mourners wore t-shirts featuring an image of Becky's smiling face. Together, they threw pink roses towards the horse-drawn carriage that transported Becky's white coffin, which was carried into the church by loved ones to the Leona Lewis ballad, Footprints in the Sand. A large floral arrangement amassed outside the church, featuring dozens of pink roses. During the service, Reverend David James told the congregation, quote, Becky has been restored into the heart of the community where she belongs. It is not a goodbye. 
In a heartfelt tribute to his daughter, Darren Goldsworthy stated, quote, Becky has left a huge void in our lives and touched the hearts of the nation. We all love you so much as you look down from heaven. Just look at what your short life has achieved. Not bad for a shy girl. You will forever be in our hearts and thoughts. Rest in peace, Angel of Bristol. The service ended with Becky's grandfather, John Goolsworthy, singing the ballad Somewhere from the musical West Side Story. As guests were leaving the church, Becky's father released a single white dove. Becky was laid to rest beneath a glittery black headstone with azure blue chippings that featured her image encircled by the words, Bristol's Angel. The trial against Nathan Matthews and Shauna Hoare for the murder of Becky Watts commenced at the start of October 2015, seven months after the teenager's death. Becky's supporters arrived to court wearing blue ribbons pinned to their shirts to honour her memory. Although Nathan had confessed to unlawful killing, he pleaded not guilty to the charges of kidnap and murder, maintaining his story that Becky's death had been an accident. He pled guilty to the remaining charges against him, perverting the course of justice, possessing a prohibited weapon, and preventing the lawful burial of a corpse. Shauna Hoare, on the other hand, pleaded not guilty to all charges. Using witness accounts, court testimonies, and Nathan Matthews' chilling confession, Becky's final moments were pieced together for the jury. On the morning of Thursday, February 19, 2015, Angie Goolsworthy left her Crown Hill house at around 11am to attend a doctor's appointment, leaving Becky home alone. During Angie's absence, Nathan Matthews and Shauna Hoare arrived to the property and let themselves in using a spare key. The pair arrived armed with a kidnap kit that included masks, handcuffs, two stun guns, tape, and numerous weapons. The exact details of what unfolded next may never be known. What is known is that Becky was set upon in her bedroom at or soon after 11.03am the time she abruptly ceased responding to text messages from friends. Injuries sustained indicated she resisted the attack, with her ordeal ending when she was subsequently suffocated to death. After Becky's murder, Nathan admitted to re-entering his stepsister's bedroom and placing her mobile phone, laptop, tablet, some makeup and clothes into a black bag, which he kept to give the illusion to others that the teen had simply packed up and left. By the time Angie returned home from her doctor's appointment at around 12.45pm, Becky's body had already been bundled into a suitcase and stored in the boot of Nathan's car. When Becky's boyfriend, Luke Oberhansley, visited the Goolsworthy home that afternoon looking for his girlfriend, he was greeted by Shauna Hoare, who feigned concern over Becky's sudden disappearance. Luke was unaware that Becky's lifeless body was just a few feet away. Although Nathan maintained he acted alone, evidence implied Shauna was also a participant. An online transaction proved Shauna had purchased the two stun guns a month prior to Becky's murder, 
strongly indicating the couple planned the attack in advance. Before the couple arrived at the Goolsworthy home, they stopped at a Tesco Express convenience store to purchase batteries, the same type used in the stun guns. Shauna's DNA and traces of her makeup were detected on the interior lining of one of the face masks found with Becky's body. Her online interactions with Nathan revealed the pair shared a sexual interest in petite young teenage girls similar to Becky and often fantasised about abducting a girl for their own pleasure. As concerns rose over Becky's whereabouts, Nathan and Shauna casually watched television at the Goolsworthy home. Later that night, the couple drove back to their home on Cotton Mill Lane, ordered some Chinese takeout for dinner, flicked through channels on the television, and played Monopoly like it was any normal night. The day after Becky's murder, Nathan rang his employer to say he needed to take time off due to car trouble. Over the following two days, Nathan purchased the tools required to dismember Becky's body, proceeding to do so in the bathroom of his house. After packaging up Becky's remains, Nathan meticulously scrubbed the bathtub and surrounding tiles clean to hide the evidence and remove all traces of Becky's DNA. This type of deep clean was taught to soldiers in the UK's Army Reserve, of which Nathan was previously a member. Soldiers were taught about decontamination and were required to clean an area until it was spotless. The couple's next-door neighbour testified to overhearing lots of activity coming from Nathan and Shauna's flat during this time, which was unusual for the typically quiet couple. The neighbour heard running up and down stairs, banging, slamming doors, scraping, furniture being moved, and a suitcase being rolled across a wooden floor. Nathan then contacted Carl Demetrius, offering him money to help relocate and store the luggage which held the pieces of Becky's body. Maintaining he didn't know the true contents of the bags and boxes, Carl enlisted the help of James Island, and the trio used a work van to transport Becky's remains to Carl's backyard garden shed. Nathan intended to keep the remains in the shed until he could think of a better way to dispose of them. Quote, I tried to think of a plan, drive them out to sea or something, but I didn't know. As Nathan contemplated how he was going to dispose of Becky's remains, he assisted his stepfather in creating a Facebook post to raise awareness of his stepsister's disappearance, all the while knowing exactly where she was. An emotional Nathan Matthews took the stand admitting that he planned to kidnap Becky as a plot to scare her and teach her a lesson for being spoiled and selfish. He only intended to render her unconscious, but in trying to do so, accidentally killed her. When he realised Becky was not breathing and had no pulse, he panicked and hid her body out of shame. When asked how he went about dismembering Becky's body, Nathan said, quote, I just did it. I tried not to look. I did it, and it was just surreal. That's the only way I can explain it. I was just doing what I had to do to protect everybody else. Stop them finding out that she's gone. The defence argued that the crime was fuelled out of sibling hatred and jealousy, which went against the prosecution's argument that the crime was sexually motivated. 
To solidify his case, prosecution lawyer William Mousley presented Nathan's computer, on which police uncovered evidence that Nathan accessed pornography nearly every day. A majority of the videos featured adult actresses posing as teenage girls. He had also bookmarked websites that featured the word teen. All up, police found 236 sadistic images and 21 pornographic videos on Nathan's laptop. Just hours before Becky's murder, Nathan watched a 17-minute video titled Virgin Teen Gets Raped in Own House. In one particular scene, the rapist tied the girl's hands together, placed a hand over her mouth and slapped her in the face. Mousley argued the scene bore striking similarities to Nathan's attack on Becky, suggesting he used the video as inspiration. Prior to Becky's murder, Nathan had also been speaking to a 16-year-old girl on Facebook, the private messages between the pair making it clear that he had a sexual interest in her. Nathan's grandmother testified that his mental health had deteriorated radically in the previous two years, and his dislike for Becky increased during that time. Nathan's defence lawyer, Adam Vatterlingham, agreed that while Nathan's plan to kidnap Becky had indeed been ridiculous and absurd, his plan never included murder. When it came to Shauna Hoare, the prosecution presented a video which was accessed on Shauna's mobile phone on the day of Becky's murder. The video, which was searched for on YouTube, was a parody of a Disney song from the popular movie Frozen, titled Do You Want to Build a Snowman? The parody version Shauna watched was titled Do You Want to Hide a Body? According to Shauna, the fact that she watched the video on the day Becky was murdered was a coincidence. She claimed to have only accessed it to make Nathan laugh, insisting she had no idea he had just killed Becky. In his closing statements, prosecution lawyer William Mousley described Shauna's claim of ignorance to Nathan's crimes as a ridiculous concept. She was in the house when Becky was killed, in the car carrying Becky's body, and at home when Becky's body was in her bathtub. Mousley said Shauna displayed a cool, cold, collected facade that in no way made her look like a little girl lost. In her police interview tapes, she answered questions concerning Becky's welfare cheerfully, sometimes giggling, despite the seriousness of the situation. Shauna was compared to Lady Macbeth, the mastermind in Shakespeare's famous play, who provokes her husband to commit murder for her own personal gain. Mousley said the famous line from Macbeth applied to Shauna. Be like an innocent flower, but a serpent beneath. As for Nathan Matthews, Mousley pointed out that the confessed killer lied repeatedly, arguing Nathan's actions were full of hatred. Becky's death was not an accident or abduction gone wrong. It was cold-blooded murder. The trial concluded on November 11, 2015, and the jury retired to consider five weeks' worth of evidence to reach a verdict. After just over three hours of deliberation, 
The jury declared Nathan Matthews guilty of the murder of Becky Watts. Shauna Hoare was found not guilty of murder, but guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter. Sentencing occurred on November 13, 2015, during which Becky Watts' parents delivered heart-wrenching victim impact statements, revealing how deeply loved their daughter had been and how tragically her murder had changed their lives. Nathan bent forward, keeping his head down during their statements, while Shauna remained seated upright, staring straight ahead. Becky's father, Darren Goldsworthy, said, quote, We will never understand why this happened, but we now believe we were just disposable pawns in a plot born out of hatred, jealousy, and greed. The heartless, cold, and calculating perpetrators of this despicable act of evil can never be forgotten or forgiven. This act of violence sent shockwaves through not only our family, but the whole country, and further afield. The betrayal we feel is insurmountable. It would have been much kinder to have killed us all than to have to cope with the aftermath of this crime. Not only did they cruelly rob Becky of her life, they also took her dignity in death. When I close my eyes to go to sleep, I see Becky's death over and over again. I see what they did to my child. I hear her cry out, what are you doing? Then I feel her terror as she realises they are not going to stop and she is about to die. I feel her heart racing. I see all this and I am powerless to help her. All too frequently, I awake drenched in sweat and physically shaking. Becky was so small and fragile, she never stood a chance. These nightmares consume my every thought, like advanced cancer. They haunt my days and terrorise my nights. This is the reality of what transpired that day, a legacy I cannot escape. At this time, I pray that the law and justice will go hand in hand and the sentence will fit this evil act of murder and butchery. Becky's biological mother, Tanya Watts, spoke of being haunted by images of her daughter's little wrist in the mortuary, with a bandage covering the horrific cut marks. Quote, Every day has been a living nightmare, and as if that wasn't bad enough, for some reason my daughter was not only murdered, but she was mutilated and cut into pieces. It's the worst of all horror movies, but this is real. This is my child. Based on evidence presented at trial, Justice James Dingmans accepted that the alleged kidnapping and subsequent murder of Becky Watts had been a sexually motivated plan orchestrated by both Nathan Matthews and Shauna Hoare, with Shauna pandering to Nathan's perversions and acting his subordinate. He did not accept Shauna's claims of ignorance, stating she was either the unluckiest, most naive person in the world, or clearly she knew what was going on. Justice Dingmans noted the couple's deceit of their own family as particularly cruel and unusual. His eyes whirled with tears and his voice broke as he spoke of Becky's family. Quote, I should like to pay public tribute to the family of Becky for the dignified way in which they have conducted themselves. Hearing the evidence during the trial has been difficult for anyone, 
but it is plain that it has been an immense burden for the family. Taking into account that Nathan nor Shauna had shown any remorse for their actions, and both still refused to speak truthfully about what really happened to Becky, Justice Dingman sentenced Nathan Matthews to a mandatory life sentence with a minimum term of 33 years. Shauna Hoare was sentenced to 17 years in prison. Subsequent appeals have been rejected. Carl Demetrius and Jaden Parsons, the couple who let Nathan Matthews store Becky's body parts in their garden shed on Barton Court, both pled guilty to assisting an offender. Judge Neil Ford accepted the couple's defence that they did not know what Nathan's suitcases contained. Quote, You both knew Nathan Matthews, but neither of you could have imagined that he was capable of the levels of depravity to which he descended. You had unwittingly agreed to the hiding of the body of Rebecca Watts and objects connected to her abduction, killing and dismemberment. You were motivated by money and knew that you were assisting Matthews to hide items which you believed were linked to a relevant offence. Those who assist offenders in ignorance of the offence that has been committed take a risk, and the punishment that follows must reflect the offence that has been committed. Carl Demetrius was sentenced to two years prison, and Jaden Parsons to 16 months for their involvement with the crime. James Island, the man who helped Carl Demetrius move the suitcases, and Carl's twin brother, Donovan Demetrius, who also lived at the Barton Court property, pled not guilty to assisting an offender. They both claimed no involvement in the crime, and were eventually found not guilty and cleared of all charges. After the trial, the Bristol community continued to show their support for Becky Watts and her family. A lamppost was placed in one of Becky's favourite places, St George Park, to pay tribute to her memory every time it lit up. An apple tree was planted in Becky's honour at the Meadowvale Community Centre, and a memorial bench was placed in Plummer's Hill, close to her home. Lastly, a mural was painted featuring Becky's name in bold lettering, the top half of the text painted pink, the bottom blue. Angie Goolsworthy's health deteriorated following the tragedy, as the horror that her own son was responsible for her beloved stepdaughter's death took its toll. Despite this, she hoped to one day summon the courage to confront Nathan in prison and find out the truth of what exactly happened on February 19, 2015. Quote, I want to know why it happened. I just want to see that he feels guilty. I want to know that he understands what he's done, not only to Becky, but to me as well. I want him to know that he's destroyed my life, and that soon I'll be dead, and I'll die broken-hearted. I'll ask him why. I'll tell Nathan I can never forgive him for what he's done. I'll explain this will be the last time he ever sets eyes on his mother. The last time I see my son. The last chance to look into his eyes. I think I love him, but I'm not really sure now. He's done what he's done, but I'm still his mother. Angie's dying wish is to be buried next to Becky, 
the girl she raised as her own daughter. Quote, I want to be buried with Becky, the beautiful girl my son took away from us. We were inseparable from the time she was a baby. She felt safe in my arms. Darren Galsworthy continues to suffer from nightmares of the pain and terror his daughter endured during her final moments, believing with utmost certainty her death was at the hands of both Nathan Matthews and Shauna Hoare. He keeps the door to Becky's old bedroom locked to ensure everything inside remains exactly as it was the day she died, a timeless memorial to his only daughter. Darren fondly revisits home videos of Becky, including one where the two go head-to-head in the Atomic Curry Challenge. In the footage, Becky bravely holds up a fork bearing incredibly spicy curry. After a few hesitant nibbles, she begins woofing down the meal, telling her dad with a wry smile that it's easy, as her face starts to redden and break out with sweat. In a tribute to her daughter, Tanya Watts said, quote, I would like to say a big thank you to everyone who took my beautiful angel into their hearts. I have felt unable to say anything about Becky until now as the sense of loss and pain is overwhelming. But throughout this time, I have been so touched and comforted by how people, many of whom are complete strangers, have taken the time to express their condolences. I feel Becky's presence all around me. I know that she is up in heaven with her nanny and grampy and other people that loved her. Thank you to all those people who helped search for Becky and got our angel returned to us. We were able to see each other one last time. I know that she is at peace and can now have the dignity that she deserves. I am determined to focus on happy memories of Becky as a beautiful baby and a gorgeous girl. I have been going through old photographs and she has a beaming smile in all of them. This is how she should be remembered, for her beauty inside and out. Forty-seven years ago, on a warm summer's night in Melbourne, Susan Bartlett and Suzanne Armstrong were stabbed to death in their home in Easy Street, Collingwood. Suzanne's 16-month-old son was asleep in his cot at the time. To this day, the Easy Street murders is still one of Australia's most confronting cold cases. No one has ever been charged, and critical questions remain unanswered. Journalist Helen Thomas has been investigating Susan and Suzanne's deaths for more than a decade, initially for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's background briefing program, and then for her book, Murder on Easy Street. Now Helen has delved into the case again for a brand new original podcast made for Casefile Presents. Search Casefile Presents The Easy Street Murders wherever you get your podcasts or binge the entire series for free on the iHeartRadio app.